Asia tends to, generally speaking, innovate more recently than I would say I've seen from the West. So when you think about the longer term competitive dynamics of a company like Blizzard or other companies against like a MiHoYo, you have to think that the longer term favors these Chinese companies like MiHoYo and the Tencent Studios. Hi, everyone. It's Yuval Pasov, your host of Game On Asia, a podcast about the mobile gaming ecosystem in Asia. So what will you learn today? You will learn why opening an office in India uh, can actually be a competitive advantage. And it's not all about costs. How can you compete with big gaming companies in China? Why shooters games are number one in the US and RPG games are number one in the East? And finally, why understanding the culture of each country can improve your gameplay and the monetization of your game. In case you missed our previous episode, make sure to check them and discover the gaming markets in the region, including China, Japan, Korea, India, Vietnam, Australia, and Indonesia. Enjoy the episode and make sure to subscribe and check our website, gameonasia.net. Enjoy the episode. Great. So let's start. Joseph, it's great to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me on. And I think that as I usually uh, start is by you introducing yourself and uh, you have a lot of experience in the gaming industry. Uh, so feel free to mention whatever you think that is, is relevant. Sure. I mean, I think the, the simple story of my background is that I'm a games guy. I've been in kind of the gaming industry for about, I don't know, 10, 11 years. Uh, before that, I had a kind of a career in software development as well as management consulting, but then mm-hmm. shifted over to working on games during the early social gaming days. So launched a game on MySpace, Facebook during the early days when you know you basically could put anything out there and it just kind of blew up, right? So got an initial set of experience building games at that time, which made me believe that I could, it kind of gave me confidence that I could actually work in the gaming industry and on games. And it was just so surprising at that time when you first saw just how social games could be during the early kind of social days, as well as the amount of monetization and spend that you saw even during those early days. And so that's kind of how I first got into gaming from there, developed a mobile gaming studio, raised some money to start a gaming studio back around, I don't know, 2010, 2011 or so. Uh, with you know some some folks from Zynga, and that was not very successful. But and and I would probably say that that's because I tried to start a company without really having a background in terms of actually doing any real work. Right, I was a software developer, then a management consultant, so I had a lot of theory, mm-hmm. but didn't know how to like manage people or run a business. So I think I was the um, it was kind of like right place, right time, wrong person for, for me at the time. Yeah. But, you know, and but just to kind of cut it short, uh, since then spent a lot of time kind of uh, working with different game development studios from a, on a consulting basis, kind of like large Asian publishers like Renren Games and Smilegate, helping them set up a Western uh, mobile game publishing business. Then I joined a company called Fun Plus, and then I led the development of a game that actually wound up doing pretty well called uh, King of Avalon. Mm-hmm. 
And then based upon that success, I kind of shifted from the development side and moved into publishing. And so worked at Sega in their mobile operating division for the West, then uh, joined NBC Universal in their games publishing group, uh, which was more uh, mobile plus, you know, PC console. And then have been working on kind of my own thing. So my, my current my my current focus is a gaming studio. It's a new gaming studio called Leela Games. We're a little bit different in the sense that we're working on a free-to-play shooter, but primarily based in India. So we're trying to build out our studio in India. And so far, so good. I mean, it's been pretty tough and kind of, you know, a little bit tough building a new studio during the pandemic. But I would say I feel very fortunate to be in the you know, be in the industry that we're in and to in, in the current times are just, you know, really great for being in games. And so I, I definitely feel very fortunate for that. Amazing. Yeah. I think that a lot of the thing that you said about, um, you know, opening, uh, um, you know, your, your primary studio in India, helping Sega to go to, um, you know, the West, it's a lot of things that I'll be glad to, to discuss later. Um, and, if if I'm moving on, looking at the pandemic, how did it actually impact your uh, company? Yeah, I mean, I I think when you're starting a new company, the ability to communicate and be able to convey culture, values, principles across Zoom meetings and things like that is not great. Right. And so I think we actually probably do a little bit of a better job than other companies in terms of communicating different things, having presentations about our culture and communicating in general. But it doesn't, there, there's nothing like being right there in person. And, you know, when people can actually see what your work ethic is like, when people, when you can discuss in real time on a board with, diff, with people about different topics, it's definitely a much, higher fidelity experience and higher fidelity form of communicating things, especially when they are potentially intangible concepts like work styles, culture, and things of that nature. And that's just something I just don't think is as efficient Mm -hmm. through remote work and through video conference calls and things like that. And you just mentioned that you're doing things that maybe a little bit better than than what you see well, in the market I mean, what, what do you what do you do just to learn from that sure yeah well i think that one we're very direct right in terms of our communication and you know this is one of the, th- the this is one of the statements i'll make and then you know uh ceos from other companies or execs will basically roll their eyes at me oh yeah we're direct too yeah we we have direct communication in our company it's like bullshit <laughs> no you don't <laughs> Uh, but I would say that uh, it's it's kind of simple things, but I, I would say it's harder to have. Well, first of all, I, I think it's there's there needs to be efficient forms of communication, right? And so it's one of the things that we do is we keep a set of uh, daily work notes. And so in a shared doc, everyone kind of writes down the things that they're working on, mm. what they accomplish, problems that they've um, that, that they encounter on a daily basis, right? And that way, 
by you, people can quickly scan through what other people are working on, and the ability to reduce meetings is eliminated. Or, you know, or yeah, you have a much better ability to reduce meetings and communication overhead through things like that, through some of the tools that we use, as well as the fact that we're really communicating a lot about our culture on probably a higher cadence. So we have a weekly all hands meeting where we have our co-founders or somebody's uh, every week will we'll present on some topic to really reinforce the messaging behind our culture, for example. And so I would say that sometimes it comes down to just the form of communication as well as the content, what you're communicating, as well as the, the cadence. And I think from that yeah. perspective, I feel like we are doing a better job than at least the other companies that, you know, in my experience that, that I've been a part of and, yeah. you know, as an, as an old guy and having been on publishing and being able to have visited so many game studios, I, I do feel that we're probably doing a little bit of a better job, even though I think we've got a long ways to go on, on our side as well. Yeah. I, I, I love it, you know, having having one doc and, and just getting the people to write what they're doing. I feel like, you know, we have so many meetings um, that we are doing and a lot of them right. is, you know, half social and half just to get updated, but definitely something yeah. that we can, you know, save people time. Yeah. And I think that what you said, the all hands, you know, it's probably, you know, from Google, that's something that's quite amazing that still uh, Larry and Sergey and now Sundar for you know, every week they're doing this all hands, even though that we are like a huge company. So um, that's definitely something that creates a culture. Um, moving on to, to India, um, you just had uh, a great virtual conference uh, that you organized, um, looking at like product investments. Um, and, and my question is, is divided to one, as what you mentioned before, why you actually decided to open an office in India when you are in the U.S. and and maybe relevant to this is you know what what is so interested uh, interesting in in India for for the gaming ecosystem, right? So, so this actually really comes down to a concept that I call structural advantage, and what I mean by that is. This notion that as an organization, and actually this kind of even goes back to a, a concept that Jeff Bezos has talked about when he when he talked about Amazon, which is that he does not like operating on a level playing field with competition, for example. And so, and and while I personally don't really think about competition in, on the micro, in, in other words, like I don't really concern myself with specific competitors or specific companies that may be in the same ecosystem or competing in the same genre as our company. Mm -hmm. I do spend a lot of time thinking about our company on the macro, right? So, so basically from a high level perspective, structurally, how are we oriented in a way that will give us long-term competitive, sustainable competitive advantage? And so when I think about us as a gaming studio, you know, there's there's different lenses by which people look at companies. And I think the typical, like if you're talking to a supply chain manager or somebody in operations or a typical game industry exec, they're going to say, well, we operate based upon people, process, technology. Some, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's a very common framework that a lot of yeah. execs think about. But the way that I think about competition, again, on the, on the macro is really around how do we fundamentally have competitive advantage over other companies? And so when you think about, for example, a lot of the Chinese companies now, 
whether it's you know uh, some of the Tencent studios like Timi or Quantum, and their ability to have a cost structure advantage as well as IP advantage as well as you know their ability to have aggregated um, expertise at scale against you know really really complicated games and then to leverage that technology then when you think about you know how will how will a western gaming company like blizzard you know compete against one of these chinese studios that can develop for so much lower cost that you know now with with frameworks like unreal and unity out there that has lowered the technology advantage and you know, and the fact that they have a much harder working culture over there, right? And mm-hmm. so, so when you think about the longer term competitive dynamics of a company like Blizzard or other companies against like a MiHoYo, you have to think that the longer term favors these Chinese companies like Miho, MiHoYo and the Tencent Studios. And so that's kind of the way in which I think about India. So f- for India, if we're going there, I've never been to Bangalore. Yeah. That's where our headquarters is going to be. Yeah. I mean, and, and so, you know, we're, we're very thoughtful in terms of like, well, how do we get advantage? And then, you know, part of what we have is we have a fundamental dedication to trying to do whatever it takes to be successful. And so I actually don't give a fuck, you know, what Bangalore is like, but we yeah. know that if we're there, we'll have access to talent and we'll have the ability to hire the kind of people that we need to hire to be successful and that we will also have structural advantage. I mean, some of it comes from cost and some of it comes from the fact that, you know, we will, we have a smart, you know, dedicated uh, labor force out there and, and some other factors in, in terms of some of the things that are starting to, to converge and starting to happen in India. So, so just touching on that, what did you see? Because, you know, cost, we understand, you know, it's something that I see also lots of hubs of, you know, different companies are, are based in, in Bangalore and in India. Mm-hmm. What do you see that it's giving you this competitive advantage that you, you're saying in regards to gaming? And, yeah, and maybe so, to I broaden mean, that is, is more about like what, what's interesting sure. in gaming in India. Yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, I think it, it's always going to come down to people, right? It's yeah. going to come down to are you able to hire and train potential superstars that basically are the type of employees that can really move the needle against success for a game product. Mm-hmm. And when you think about like I've been negative on San Francisco for a very long time and you know you just can't retain talent in San Francisco. It's dramatically higher cost and because of the dynamics of the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, people want to start a family, they want to buy a house. So if they get a, you know, offer for 10% higher salary, well it's like, well, you know, I they they're just going to do it. They're going to jump. I and like your company, now, but you know, yeah. yeah. And and now you're also competing against Google and Facebook and Dropbox and all these other companies yeah. that are vying for because you know free to play translates very well to many other industries. Yeah. So I would say that when we look at India, though, India is tough, right? Like not a lot of game companies want to be in India. And um, and a lot of the companies that are there, whether whether it's Zynga or or Glue or companies like that, they're largely the, the games that they're operating are largely like the maintenance titles that are on decline in a live operating mode, right? And so mm-hmm. I think the ability for us on a comparative basis to be able to build a studio in which, 
you know, I fundamentally think that we're really going to be able to dramatically improve the skill set of the of the employees that we are able to hire in India. And when you think from a comparative basis, what our company will be able to offer in terms of new game development, in terms of training and things of that nature, as well as opportunity and compensation, I think what we have in India is a dramatically higher value proposition for employees that are looking at opportunities relative to, say, if we were to set up shop in like the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. So you mean like it's it's more about the people and as you say, the, the talent It's something that you would need to to build and and work with them because probably let's say game design or or think that you know maybe programming yes it's something that it's you would yeah. be able to to recruit but more into like game design I'm not sure like how many you know yeah. talents you will have around game design for example yeah well and and I mean I think fortunately I would say that you You know one of the one of our co-founders is a game designer and he's teaching his methods to his design team okay but uh, but I and he's I, from I, he's from India no he's actually like you know I okay he okay, worked so. he worked on King of Avalon at fun plus with me he was okay. one of the lead game designers at machine zone and things things yeah. like that so we're, we're taking some of those best practices from yeah. working okay. on those games and bringing it to India and, and training the folks that that work with us and you So I think that you know so, so for us that's what we see is we see the ability to hire smart hungry people that want to that really really have a strong desire to learn and to become the best at their craft and so what, what, what we're looking for are we're looking for employees that have a lot of potential and that have a desire to really be essentially craftsmen right? Uh, Japanese called Kensai basically you know masters at what they do and so that's that's what we're looking for and it's easier and more trainable we believe in India than in other locations okay great thank you for that um, I think that the other thing that you men- mentioned about China and you know how do you compete with with China in terms of you know in the past we thought that China is you know they will do their games but it will stay in China and But now when we look globally all, all the top grossing are, are coming from China the yeah. you know how, how they are looking at you know developing a game there is <clears throat> can be a studio of I don't know 500 600 people working you know many hours uh, on one game yeah. how, how do you think that's going to to evolve and how how is like the West is going to you know as, as you you gave an example about Blizzard is going to compete with that or or just like do you To do the you know the adaptation to to compete with with this yeah so I mean the, the way that we view that is that we fundamentally believe that the world is infinite from a kind of um, you know James Carr's infinite game perspective meaning that just because you know quantum or Timmy build an incredible for, you know we're in the shooter space and you know they have built incredible shooter games right uh, Call of Duty mobile um, you know PUBG uh, and you know they're working on other games um, what I would say is that if we were to try to compete strength on strength then one we would <laughs> we would be under we would be at a competitive disadvantage right yeah. so our our you know our, let's say our 15 guys currently although we're, we're scaling pretty quickly but you know our 15 guys against the 300 
banner guys in, 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 you know, in Beijing or Shanghai and the fact that they have a lot of existing tech and they have IP and they have blah, 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 blah. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so why, and then what are we going to add? What are we adding to the world that's valuable by going strength on strength, making the same product that they're making? Mm-hmm. So the way to compete is to understand what we are good at and to play to our strengths, right? And so I think that we bring, we come from a, a kind of a different perspective, having launched number one top grossing games from you know a different genre, from the 4X March to Battle genre, and from taking some of the characteristics that are inherent within that genre and trying to bring those characteristics to the shooter market. And so for us, it's about how do we create a different kind of a product, a pro, you know, because, you know, I mean, you know, I talk about with my, with my team, I talk about ice cream a lot and different flavors of ice cream. But right. if there's, if there's vanilla and, you know, five different flavors of vanilla, vanilla why would I want to make another <laughs> flavor of vanilla ice Another cream? vanilla, yeah. We're, we're chocolate. You know what I mean? We're, we're chocolate. We, we want to make something different. And I think the world is hungry for different kinds of experiences. I don't think that there necessarily needs to be just vanilla ice cream. And so for us, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a differentiated product that hopefully people will really, really love and that elicits very strong emotions in our players. Because for us, that's kind of like the ultimate ambition behind the kind of product that we want to build are, are ones in which uh, in, induce strong emotions. Great. Okay. So not, not another vanilla, go for the chocolate, <laughs> go, go for, you know, the other, other flavors. And, and, you know, as, as I, as I said before, you interviewed quite a lot of people, you know, quite a lot of people from, from the gaming industry. Um, any, anything that, that you see now that you would, say, I don't want to use the word trends, but let's use trends um, in terms of like the new things that are different um, that you see that coming, um, not, not specifically uh, from Asia, but, you know, globally, because you said it's, it, it's an infinite world. I don't think that we yeah, can I mean, separate I, that. Sure. I mean, I think there's certain trends that are happening. I mean, one, I, I think we're seeing a lot of innovation, especially from China and Japan, right? We're seeing different kinds of games, a lot of hybridization. And, you know, in the Forex category, we're, we're seeing a lot of um, hybrid types of games emerge. We're starting to see various types of, you know, hybrid mechanics that, that are occurring. I would say that uh, one thing happening in Asia is just, you know, increasing focus on cross-platform. And I think with the success of MiHoYo, We'll probably see more of that, and and I do think that what we'll start to see, especially from China, is their ability to gain greater market share in the in the cross, you know, in, in the console and PC market as they kind of figure out, you know, how to develop products for that market. And so while while China has really been focused on mobile, I do see them being able to gain a much greater share with the, as, as I mentioned before, structural advantage that, that they possess. And as, as more teams in China figure it out, and as that, the knowledge of best practices and ability to 
to be able to you know create very successful PC and console games starts to you know starts to um, starts to go to other teams in in China and get shared. I, I think we're going to see more and more success. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? So it will be like a mobile game that will uh, the user or the player will be able to expand to to to, well, or continue I, no, to I mean, play think, on on a PC or on a console. Well, no, I, I think it's more just like you know I, I remember you know there's a book called Atomic Habits that talks about yeah. how nobody thought that I, I forgot it was like the six minute mile or something like that that nobody could do a six minute mile and then as soon as the first guy did it within like I don't know six months or whatever then everyone started breaking the six minute mile right and I think in a similar fashion a lot of Chinese game studios that uh, that realize the success of mihoyo and realize okay here is a model of success in terms of scale production value going after the Um, you know markets in which for example you just have to look at the Nintendo catalog and see where Nintendo is not going to follow build a high production game against some of those models and then all of a sudden you can have a really highly monetizing game product and, mm-hmm. and so we're we're starting to see you know other companies like game science trying to do the same thing with black myth Wukong and things like that I just think that one trend will be the emergence of the Game studios at scale addressing that kind of console PC market and in much more successful ways than potentially Western peers because they don't you know the Chinese don't have the same kind of hang-ups that a lot of the Western that you know really that really limit and hamper Western game studios. who have like a aversion to free-to-play game mechanics. And so when we're talking about how the free-to-play monetization and gaming model is, is really becoming you know, the, a, a bigger and bigger part of the console and PC market, I just think that China is going to be able to capitalize on that much more strongly than the existing incumbents here in the West. Okay. And, and actually going to use their experience and just develop and, and kind of expand to this, uh, this console and, and, and PC market. Yeah. Like you're going to have teams that figure it out. And then some of the, some people from that, from those teams are going to jump over to form new studios and then they're going to get funded. And then because, because investors see the big success of Mihoyo and other companies, they're going to then be willing to fund those companies. And, you know, it's, it's a virtuous cycle. that I think longer term suggests that China is going to become a, you know, a major, major player in that space. And we're going to see the decline of the West. Okay. That's great. Um, and I think that, you know, when, when, when you mentioned before innovation coming from uh, China and Japan, um, can you tell me a little bit more about the innovation that you see in Japan as a market that a lot of the time been, you know, super closed to, Um, yeah well I mean I, I think Japan's always been innovative right I mean they they basically created gotcha gotcha fusion you know there's they've got all sorts of really interesting and crazy type of games like I don't know if you've seen Uma Musume pretty Derby where it's it's like a you know no. they've got different they've got specific genres like the the idol not IDLE IDOL like okay. the idols where you're like training idols but you You know and Uma Musume is is a game where it's kind of like young girls but but half human half horse and they're okay. racing in like a horse derby and it's making tons of money but like you know they they, they tend to 
um, they tend to, I would say Asia tends to generally speaking, innovate more recently than I would say I've seen from the West. Like in Western markets, you know, we're not seeing new types of gameplay or things like that recently anyway. I mean, you know, before we'd see, you know, a lot of mods come out that, you know, became PUBG, that became, you know, you know we saw a lot of innovation. I'm seeing less of it, but, you know, I, that, that, that's just my, my anecdotal take on what, what, what's happening based upon some of the games that I've been looking at. So, so again, for people that doesn't have uh, you know a lot of knowledge and, and maybe it's it's kind of like the, the first time they they exposed to to the you know the Japanese gaming market what would be kind of like a few things that you would find like super inter- interesting so you mentioned a few but um, any, anything like else besides those games I mean I think there's a lot like I don't I don't closely follow the Japanese market but you know when I I did see Uma Musume, looked at the revenue, kind of checked out the videos, and I'm just like, what is this game? It's crazy. Mm. But, and I do know of the idol market. I don't play those idol games, but I know there are specific subgenres in Japan that don't, that don't seem to exist outside of Japan. And so, and, you know, I, for me, you know, maybe it seems innovative to me because it's just very strange to me the kinds of yeah. games that are doing well there. Uh, but, you know, you, I, I think that we can't argue that there, you know, a lot of the the basis behind free to play in terms of monetization techniques and things like that were originated from Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that you know, I had conversation um, with uh, with a person in uh, South Korea, and and one of the things that they mentioned about web uh, webtoons uh, and about you know all the things that coming out of this. You know, content. You know, a Netflix show, but then a lot yeah. of games, and and you know, it's quite amazing that it's another thing that Korea, you know, done in Korea, but now being, you know, going global. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah sorry, you wanted to say something? Oh no, I, I would say you know the the one other thing I would probably recommend is to really think about like in terms of if if you're trying to understand differences in terms of games in those gaming markets to not only think in terms of, well, I, I would say to think about it on a very fundamental basis. And so like, for example, um, I wrote a post in my, uh, so I have a newsletter called Game Makers. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that I wrote- Highly, about highly recommend it. I'm, I'm subscribed. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Right. It is like designing for emotion, right? And, and one of the things that I talk about in that specific post is- that there is this view that the Japanese have about user needs, that basically when you think about a game, that a game is a manifestation of a specific human desire or need. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for example, you may have a need to, uh, you may have a need to show progress you may have like certain desires that you have. And so, you know, if, if you see somebody playing a lot of, let's say uh, a simple match three game, it may be because that game allows them to, to complete and show progress in a way in which they can't, they don't see, or they don't in real life. Mm. Right. And it may be that let's say the 35 year old, 
Walmart worker who had big dreams of doing huge things in their life when they were young, now feels like maybe they aren't that powerful. They aren't, their life isn't that great. But in this game, they are Baldar 59 and 10,000 people know who you are and you are the leader of this alliance. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's like, and so the, just thinking back in terms of, and, and by the way, I don't think it's an accident that shooters are generally the number one genre in the West and RPGs are the number one genre in, you know, in countries like uh, Japan. I think it speaks to a, you know, to culture, to there are specific things that people are looking for that is manifest within games. And so if you can really understand culture, if you can really understand what people are looking for. So why, can, why RPG is, is, is uh, as you see that it's like number one in, in the East? Well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I'll, I'll let people draw their own conclusions, but when you think about, you know, a, a highly, you know, structured conformist society in which everyone's kind of, you know, very similar in like the ability to have individualism, the ability to feel powerful in a world where, you know, where you're kind of being told to do everything, right? I, I feel like that's a greater desire in Asia relative to the US where it's, you know, where it's more of a macho masculinity culture, culture and it's mm. more about, hey, yeah. I want to exert my dominance. So I want to show that I, you know, going back to the old days when you know, our ancestors were, you know, um, killing each other and claiming territory. I mean, you don't, you can't just go around and kill your neighbor and steal their house, right? But in this yeah. game, you know, you yeah. can like, you can show that only, you're only in the game, <laughs> only in the game. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, that's great. Um, and, and I think that we are we're about to to end uh, our great conversation. I, uh, the, the the question that I had is, what is your advice for you know developers from the West uh, who would like to launch their game in Asia or expand to Asia. I know it's really depends on the country and, 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 you know, on, um, and on the genre, but again, um, from, from your experience, what's anything that come to mind? I mean, I would say that it, to your point, it does depend on the country. If it's China, you have to find a partner. <laughs> you just don't have a choice. I would say that, I mean, let's, for, let's look at the big ones. Like, let's say, you know, China, uh, Japan and Korea. Well, yeah. So China, you need to find a partner. I would say with Japan and Korea, you know, one of the differences I do think is that there isn't as much of a hang up on about free to play as there is here. Right. And so you don't have to be like the, the mon friendly monetization in Asia versus what's considered friendly monetization in the West are likely different, right? And to tell some me, degree- Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, I think that the, the biggest example is probably, let's say China, right? So, so let, let's say you're making a game for China yeah. and going, going back to user needs, okay? Let's say, so if, if I'm in the States and I want to show off, how do I show off? Well, I might have a house party. And yeah. I, I might have my nice car that I drive to work. Yeah. And be like, hey, guys, look at my fancy car. Look at my fancy watch. Come over to my house and, I'll, and look, at my, look at my 
really nice, expensive house. That's kind of how people show off if you're mm. in the U.S. Yeah. In China or Asia, you can't really. People don't invite each other over to their homes. They might be living far away, you know. And so, what? How do you show status in Asia?、Mm. Well, now it's like, what's your phone, right? So you have people in China who don't make much money, but they got the latest iPhone. Why? That's how I show off.、Mm. That's my car. And I remember when I was working at Fun Plus, there was a game that had like a ten thousand dollar building in it, and it's like, why? Who would pay for a ten thousand dollar building? And then my friend would was showing me this game, and he's like, look at all these girls messaging me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's again status. I own this ten thousand dollar thing in this game, and I, I I don't know. I think it was like connected via WeChat or something like that, right? But. Like wow. that is、That's、a way that you kind of show off your status, right? And and so I would say like those are so one like if you pay in Asia, it's not considered bad. There are people who pay for stuff in in game in the West, and they and they lie and they tell people they didn't pay. No, no, it was my skill. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. I'm so good. Right? Yeah. No, no,、so、my kid, my kid accidentally <laughs> pressed on that. It's it's I didn't so, buy so it. Like, So,、yeah. so it that part is different. Where in the West, it's like if you're, let's say, you know, you, you're a high ranking Clash Royale, you're like, oh, it's because I'm so good. It's you know, it's my my skill. I'm really good at it. But in Asia, it's like you know, there's less of there's less of a hang up around paying for things, and there's more there's actually more status in saying, look at all the money I spent on this. Look how rich I am. Look at me, right? And so then, when people pay in Asia, it's like, well, what do I get? You know, what are the advantages I get for paying? Yeah, you know, and, and you know, just generally speaking, generally speaking.、Right? Yeah, and I, and I feel that the other thing is like what what I heard from Korea is like the pay to win, right? That that yeah, it's, it's something it's, that it's it's you know it's back it's in so many yeah. years. Yeah, that they yeah, are like, they're used hey, to. Yeah, I pay for、yeah. this. What do I get? And then yeah, but here it's like, wait, you paid, and you don't get everything for free. It's not about skill, you know, and, and so that, that so that part is a little bit different. So and, you mean and, like and, if I'm if I'm a Western developer, how, how do I approach that in in a way that it's it sounds like it's a whole mechanic of the game that needs to be changed in, in order for the game to the work way, in in this country? Yeah, I, I, well, I would say the way in which you monetize games, you know, theoretically, I mean, there's there's like, I mean, I I think the counter example would be, you know, I I would say Supercell games tend to do well in Asia and in the West. Mm-hmm. But I would say, like as a general principle, you that the the pay to win mentality is much more accepted in Asia, and that you don't have to be as fair to play there as you may have to here. And it also depends on genre too, right? Like in shooters, you know, a lot of the shooter guys really, really expect fair to play rather than pay to win.、Mm. And if it's like pay to win, it's like oh fuck this game, you know, it's a pay、yeah. to win game. Uninstall, yeah. <laughs>、um, okay, so it's it's more about like thinking about the monetization model that need to be adapted、um, to, I, to the so, markets, right? Well, I would say like understand the the more you understand the culture, the、yeah. more you will be able to understand the gameplay, the user needs, 
how you monetize, all that stuff is better. The more that you fundamentally understand the people and the culture of a country. Yeah. So definitely culture is, is super important, specifically in Asia. Moving on to something that everyone is talking about, the metaverse. Uh, it would be great to get your point of view and if there is any uh, specific things uh, in Asia. Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm, I would like to learn about the metaverse too because okay. I think that what <laughs> I'm hearing doesn't sound very real. You know what I mean? Like everything I read, when you, when you kind of dig more deeply into what's being written about the metaverse. Well, I mean, what's kind of like, your TLDR on, on metaverse? For, for someone that never heard about that. I, I, I think that what we're starting to see are various operating models for the metaverse start to appear, mm-hmm. but it's really not clear what the metaverse will become, right? And so as, as an example, so what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that if you were to talk to Epic or Roblox, their version of the metaverse seems to be converging around this notion of shared user experiences, right? And so you go into Roblox, you go into Fortnite, and there is a concert or they put in a school or they put something where they create a shared experience for people. And so that's what it seems like from a from an epic and Roblox perspective, what the metaverse means. Mm. Now there's the Neil Stevenson, you know, kind of ready player one model, which seems way far out, but it does seem like if any, the, the closest company to doing something like that seems to be Facebook. And, you know, I know Zuck has talked about his version of the metaverse, which still seems very abstract, but seems like it's oriented around some type of VR experience or having an, an experience where you're inside of something and are able to interact with different things. And so that's another version of the metaverse that seems a little further off. And then if you talk to the blockchain guys and the, the crypto guys are saying, well, the metaverse for them is more of a transactional layer, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning that regardless of the specific, like whether you're in VR or whether you're on a website, that's just a GUI. So for them, metaverse is a GUI to an underlying transactional layer, you know, enabled by the blockchain that enables you to tie something in a virtual world to a real world physical thing or mm. some kind of digital asset, right? And so that's another version of the metaverse. And so I, I think that for me, I guess I don't know what model of the metaverse ultimately wins out, I, but I think that a lot of what I hear about the metaverse seems to be a lot of more intellectual speculation mm, and okay. just kind of, you know, a little smoke and mirrors rather than I, you know, cause basically what I see when it comes to the metaverse are smart people who are able to speak in very complicated and abstract ways that have the form of substance but without actual substance of what the metaverse is, <laughs> if, yeah. if you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. And so you can you can kind of tap dance around and say the metaverse, there's this metaverse thing, da 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 da, you know. But then it's like, then you're always still waiting to see, well, what does that actually mean? What are all these words that yeah. are being talked about? All yeah. this intellectualism, what does that mean? And so when you boil it all down, for me, you know, it's like, well, it, it's a VR thing where you're kind of doing stuff. It's, 
you know, it's a shared experience or it's a transactional layer. Yeah. And that's kind of how I think about it. And I don't know which one wins, but, you know, I would say that that's how I view the metaverse. It's, it's right now, there seems to be three models, Mm, probably, actually, there's probably a few more models and, but, um, you know, it's, it's to be determined, but it does for me seem to be further off because a lot of the short-term stuff just seems to be a lot of intellectualizing, right? Yeah, I cannot see that it's much more clear now, but I can definitely uh, say that I just uh, I have you know much more knowledge and 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 just adding to like how complicated it is and and in the yeah. same time you know how real it is. But this is the metaverse, right? It cannot be real. But yeah. So um, and and the last question that I have, if if you could have a time machine and and you can yeah. go back in time when when you started your career what 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 advice would will you give yourself i mean i would probably just say you know just enjoy the journey right i mean i i think uh, i had a mentor many years ago who kind of described life to me in these terms he said life is really all about opportunities decisions and experiences. And if you kind of think about it in those terms, you know, I, I, I think you kind of relax sometimes about the things that happen in your life, right? Because basically you, you can think about, about it in those terms. And so, um, you know, I, I would say that I, I would probably advise myself not to worry so much about the future and just kind of enjoy the experiences that, that you do have in your life, right? Because <laughs> life's pretty short. <laughs> but but then yeah. when you say opportunities, it's it's might be you you might be nervous that you know you will miss an opportunity. Right, but then that well that basically what that means is that you have a different experience, right? So an opportunity, you make a decision, and you have one experience versus another. Hmm, so okay. I mean. You know, and and ultimately, I think that there are. I, I think that you know the 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 Stoic philosophy would suggest that you know whatever happens, happens, and and so the 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 only thing that you can really control is how you interpret and deal with this, the circumstances and situations that that occur in your life. So, yeah. Okay. Basically. Yeah, we, we we ended up. It's like in a very heavy, but I think that it's a it's a it's a good it's a good it's a good uh, you know good advice, and I feel that I hope that we all uh, manage to enjoy you know from the experience and the journey, and not just like you know with any little things that coming into our life will just like make us like ah uh, you know for a few days like what happened and so on, and but then when we look back, we we look like it's you know it was nothing. Um, but uh, Joseph, thank you very much. It was uh, no such a pleasure. I really enjoyed, learned a lot. Thank you very much for, for spending the, the last uh, 55 minutes with us. <laughs> no worries. Thank you so much for listening to the episode today. Next month, we will be back with another interesting guest. And in the meantime, please make sure to hit the subscribe button uh, on your podcast software so we can make sure to update you with any 
new content that we will be releasing. So for now on, have a great day and see you soon. <laughs>